everyone, and welcome to Writers Drinking Coffee. This is a podcast based on writers sitting around drinking and talking about writing, publishing, and the whole creative process. We do not censor ourselves, so consider us PG-13. Your host today is just me, Jeannie Warner, but I have a special guest because this is episode 106, Cliff Winnig Reads a Story. Cliff is a member of my writing group, The Flying Cares, and way before plague times, I asked him if he wanted to come on the show. And what with one thing and another, after some heavy support for his amazing first responder wife and looking after adorable kids, he's finally able to join us. So welcome, Cliff. Thank you. I was wondering, since this is your first time with us and people may not know you as well as they would like to, would you read us a story, maybe something something lighthearted after the long, adventurous year and a half that we've had? I would be very happy to read you a lighthearted story after the long, adventurous year that we've had. I would like to also note that the science fiction writer Joan Vingy says that adventures are disasters that didn't happen. And so uh, for those of us who made it through this disaster, it was an adventure. It has been Um, an adventure indeed. So, yeah. But hey, life is an adventure. You said you might have something from the Mad Scientist Journal, and that was they published one of my works, too. So tell everybody about the Mad Scientist Journal and how much we love them. So Mad Scientist Journal was a magazine, a quarterly magazine that I guess there was a monthly version. I'm in the quarterly version that was co-edited by Don Vogel and Jeremy Zimmerman. And the shtick of Mad Scientist Journal is that it is the academic journal where mad scientists send their papers. So every story is from the point of view, uh, is a first-person narrative from the point of view of a mad scientist. And the mad scientist character, who is the narrator, gets their own bio, like they would in a journal, scientific journal. And they, uh, they get to tell their story. Take it away, then tell us your story. So this story uh, was featured in the winter 2020 issue of Mad Scientist Journal, the quarterly version of the magazine. And it is unfortunately the final version, a final issue. And it is called Preliminary Field Observations of the Los Gatos Obelisk. And for those who are not from California, Los Gatos is a real place. And it, it does mean the cats in, in English. And it's a, uh, it's a kind of a, it's an upscale town in the San Francisco Bay Area. So if you know Silicon Valley, it is in Silicon Valley. And I'd like to, especially since this is an international podcast, I have learned, I would like to especially give a shout out to all the listeners in Australia and Ukraine who uh, apparently listen to us. So hello. <laughs> we love you very much. We do. And we're coming at you from Silicon Valley. And uh, this story is about Silicon Valley. So my story is called Preliminary Observations of the Los Gatos Obelisk by Carla Vasquez, as told to Cliff Winnig, February 14, 2019. I can assert with reasonable confidence that the obelisk's appearance was sudden, perhaps even instantaneous. What we know for certain is this. Residents of the 400 block of San Benito Avenue in Los Gatos, California, woke shortly before 6 a.m. to a loud humming coming from the street. All of the residents woke at once, in fact. They each got out of bed or, in one case, rolled off a living room couch. 
left their various residences and walked toward the obelisk, which hovered above the center of the street. One overnight guest's presence caused significant consternation on the part of a resident spouse who was returning from a night shift at work, but so drawn were the residents to the obelisk that this issue was noticed only after the fact. Once in the center of the street, residents joined hands and chanted, Welcome! in several languages. Some of these languages, including, it was later determined, Etruscan and Old Acadian, were not spoken by any of the residents, but were reconstructed phonetically later from memory. The team from the California Institute for Extreme Archaeology, SIXA, arrived at 10.17 a.m., having been tipped off by a diligent member of the Los Gatos City Council, who participates in the Institute's popular Local Politician Rewards Program. As the only doctoral candidate present, I began supervising the undergraduate assistants under the watchful eye of Dean Martha Bloom, who holds the Institute's prized H.W. Jones Chair in Archaeology. February 17, 2019. Over the weekend, our team took a number of measurements. The Los Gatos Monte Sereno Police Department did an excellent job of traffic control at the behest of the Institute's friends on the Los Gatos City Council. So the measurements we obtained were quite specific and confirmed as unchanging across two days. The obelisk hovered 37 centimeters above the street. Its height, not taking into account the hovering distance, is 18.27 meters. Each side is 87 centimeters wide at the base, gradually tapering to 63 centimeters before the 47 centimeter high crowning pyramid begins. It is a uniform ruddy tan and appears to be carved from a single block of stone. Please see figure one for a diagram. At the suggestion of Dean Bloom, I continue to use the term obelisk because of the object's shape even though the writing on the sides is most definitely not hieroglyphics belonging to any known Egyptian dynasty. The letters or pictograms carved into the obelisk's sides, we are still not entirely certain which they are, as they seem to be abstract but possessing certain biological features such as membranes, hair, and teeth rearrange themselves when the obelisk is not being directly observed, often with new carvings appearing in place of others that have vanished entirely. In no case have we recorded the repetition of any particular carving. Thus far, they are all unique. On Sunday, we set up a system of web cameras to continuously monitor all sides of the obelisk. Once recording began, the carvings did not change in any way, until a three-second network glitch occurred. When recording resumed, the carvings on all four sides appeared very different. One undergraduate described the new letters, or pictograms, as, quote, even more disturbing than the old ones, unquote. I would have to agree. Please see figures two and three for examples. The obelisk hums at about 87 hertz, a noise that is constant except in the presence of nearby canines. When approached by a dog, it barks. 
the Los Gatos Monte Sereno Police Department, while doing an admirable job of controlling motor traffic, has been less successful at stopping pedestrians out walking their dogs, this being a residential neighborhood. February 18, 2019. An expert dog breeder brought in by Dean Bloom has declared that the obelisk's bark most closely resembles that of a large German shepherd, or sometimes, particularly in the mid-afternoon, of a Welsh corgi. It is most definitely not barking like a poodle, he said, despite the repeated claims to the contrary by one dog-owning resident of the block. February 19, 2019. This morning, Two of the undergraduate assistants scheduled to work today called in sick, complaining of headaches and nausea. One said she'd woken up screaming but was unable to remember her dreams. A quick consultation with the field team's medical officer resulted in recommendations for Tylenol and Dramamine as needed. The officer also slipped me a vial from the Institute's cache of sleeping potion obtained by its 1995 expedition to Papua New Guinea. She said it would help the undergraduate who'd woken up screaming, and she asked me to bring it by her apartment. I did not, however, as I too have woken up screaming for the last three mornings, following nights filled with a dark, dreamless sense of dread. Fortunately, I have not suffered from headaches or nausea. For this reason, I cannot help thinking the obelisk likes me, as absurd as that sounds, although I admit I find the thought pleasing. February 20, 2019. The sleeping potion has not proven efficacious. Also, my cats, Akhenaten and Neferneferuaten, have taken to sleeping in the living room rather than curling up with me on my futon. I miss them, but I find my time spent with the obelisk to be increasingly rewarding. Every morning I look forward to getting dressed and driving out to the field, then spending the day basking in its humming glory. February 21, 2019. This morning, I woke up screaming earlier than usual, two hours before dawn, so I got dressed and went to the field. As a result, I was present at 5.57 a.m. when the obelisk changed from its usual ruddy tan to a glowing fuchsia. Literally glowing. One of the residents woken by the light said it was the equivalent of roughly 300 watts, but I can't confirm that as we didn't have accurate measuring equipment sensitive to wattage. At 6.49 a.m., when the first rays of dawn struck the top of the obelisk, it reverted to its normal color. For the rest of the day, its behavior was otherwise unchanged. On a personal note, I felt great reluctance to leave the field this afternoon, even after Dean Bloom called and insisted I meet with her in her office to discuss the progress of my dissertation. I had missed, she said, our appointment the previous morning. I managed to tear myself away from the beauteous artifact that is the obelisk and return to campus. Unfortunately, Dean Bloom does not approve of making the Los Gatos obelisk the subject of my dissertation. The fieldwork is too facile, she said. It doesn't even involve swinging from vines over alligator pits. So how will anyone take it as serious archaeological work? I pointed out, that the object is unique, and that its study might lead to a whole new branch of archaeology. But she replied that archaeology concerns itself with ancient things. This object, she said, had just appeared the previous week. 
With great reluctance, I agreed to continue working on my previous dissertation topic, which involves the much less satisfying Egyptian obelisks uncovered in a lost city in Central America. I nonetheless plan to continue taking these notes for the good of the scientific community and for possible publication in book form after I have achieved my doctoral degree and a tenure track post at a good university. February 22, 2019. Due to an unavoidable family obligation, I was not able to visit the field today. The undergraduate assistants who were present reported a green light at the very top of the obelisk that blinked, seemingly for random durations, intermittently from 1.42 to 3.14 p.m. I am furious that I was unable to observe this behavior in person, but I look forward to reviewing the video footage. February 23, 2019. Last night, as I lay in bed anticipating the horrid void my nights have become, an image of the obelisk appeared above my head and hovered there. How can I describe my joy? If the Blessed Virgin Mary had appeared surrounded by saints and angels, it could not have been more sublime. I basked in its numinous presence for several minutes before it vanished. Afterward, I fell quickly into the hideous non-being of dreamless sleep, but I woke up feeling refreshed, once the screaming stopped, that is. February 24, 2019. This morning, I arrived first at the field to discover one of the undergraduate assistants asleep with his body half inside the obelisk, despite the fact that the obelisk seemed to consist of a single stone block with no visible entrances or even a hollow interior. That last observation cannot be proven as we are unable to weigh the hovering mass. The torso, head, and arms of the unconscious undergraduate dangled from about halfway up one side. Sadly, the web camera facing that side had failed sometime during the night, so we do not know when or how he arrived there, or how he came to be buried waist-deep in seemingly solid stone. With help from the Santa Clara County Fire Department, I was able to scale a ladder to his side and shake him awake at which point he grabbed me by the shoulders, stared into my face with hollow, sunken eyes, and shouted, Not now! Not now! It isn't fair! The obelisk then ejected him. He flew past my right shoulder and into a nearby hedge with a force that, thanks to footage from the three remaining web cameras, we later calculated to be that of a cannon. The undergraduate did not suffer any serious injuries, though the neighbor whose property he landed on said she plans to bill the Institute for the cost of replacing her damaged hedge. Upon being questioned, the undergraduate claimed he could not remember why he had said those words when I woke him, or even that he had spoken them. The field team's medical officer used several Institute-approved interrogation techniques to no avail. Despite witnessing these techniques, I find myself envious of that undergraduate assistant. Though he cannot remember the experience... For a blessed, all-too-brief time, he almost achieved oneness with the crowning glory that is the Los Gatos Obelisk. February 25, 2019. Defying a restraining order from the Los Gatos City Council, representatives of the nearby Rosicrucian Egyptian Museum attempted to haul away the obelisk, which continued to hover 37 centimeters above the center of San Benito Avenue. 
They tried ropes, chains, and even spikes, overpowering me and my undergraduate assistants and pinning us to the ground while we screamed curses into the uncaring sky. Fortunately, all their attempts failed. The objects they assaulted the wondrous obelisk with passed through it as if they or it had no physical substance. Though the letters or pictograms, if that is indeed what they are, covering the sides of the obelisk remain mysterious and wholly untranslatable, I cannot help but imagine an accusing tone in those new ones that appeared while members of the museum staff blocked parts of the obelisk's sides from our web cameras. Fortunately, I had a representative of the Los Gatos City Council on speed dial and was able to activate my phone and call him even as I lay pinned by a burly Rosicrucian operative. Members of the Los Gatos Monte Sereno Police Department arrived with admirable alacrity and arrested the would-be obelisk thieves. This evening as I write this, my head is full of revenge fantasies. They will remain unrealized, however, as I must always exhibit proper professional behavior at least until I have my doctoral degree and tenure. February 28, 2019. After two normal days of observations in the field, I am happy to report waking up from a restful, dream-filled slumber. The obelisk came to me in my sleep. It told me that, though it is leaving our world today, it has decided to take me with it. Soon, it promised, I shall be its greatest disciple announcing its arrival on a thousand worlds. Then it said my life would at last have real meaning. I am putting these notes in an envelope and sending them to your journal in the hopes that you will publish them so that they can provide a beacon for future generations of archaeologists and others with an interest in that which gives rise to awe and wonder. Someday, perhaps, my obelisk will return to this world and I will meet with these future students of obelisk lore, teaching them and showing them the way to true fulfillment and happiness. In the meantime, I have left extra food and water for Akhenaten and Nefer Nefer Uaten. Please ask someone to check on them for me. Author Biography Carla Vasquez was, and presumably still is somewhere in the cosmos, a doctoral candidate in the Obelisk Studies Department of the California Institute for Extreme Archaeology, SIXA. Her dissertation, Middle Kingdom Egyptian Obelisks Mysteriously Present in a Lost City in Central America, a Structural Approach, remains incomplete, but this publication anticipates enjoying the read when it is ready. Because of her continued absence, Ms. Vasquez's cats, Akhenaten and Nefer Nefer Watan have been adopted into a good home. In letters previously written to this publication, Ms. Vasquez has expressed interest in obelisks, her cats, and late night reality TV about UFO abductees. She tells us she believes time is not cyclical. Rather, she writes, it is square. Thank you. <laughs> I love it, Cliff. That's a great story. I had a lot of fun writing it. Well, I like that it's square, especially it, for, for those of us that really love Lovecraft and the Hounds of the Tindalos. They only approach on the square angles, you know. So. Yep. yep. Beautiful. Beautiful. I will put links to Cliff's story and the other interesting things we mentioned on our website, which is www.writersdrinkingcoffee.com. You can also find us on Facebook or Twitter. We answer email. Cliff, if somebody has a question or wants to talk to you, do you answer email too? 
Rarely. No. Uh, yes, of course, I answer <laughs> email. Um, the, the easiest ways to reach me, I'm on Facebook as me. Uh, I'm on Twitter as at Winnig because I managed to beat every other m- member of my family onto Twitter. I am not on Instagram. Uh, I have a website, which is www.cliffwinnig.com. That's Winnig is W-I-N-N-I-G. So cliffwinnig.com, all one word, no hyphens or underscores or anything. My website has my bibliography with links to where to get this particular story in the final quarterly issue of Mad Scientist Journal, as well as other fiction uh, that has been published and has a few sample bits from some of my stories, including stories that were one tweet length that I sold to Twitter zines back when Twitter zines were a thing that existed. Fantastic. Thank you, Cliff. You've been listening to Writers Drinking Coffee, a labor of love and enthusiasm put together by the hosts. Our main web support magic is brought to you by Deirdre Verschween, and our sound engineer and backup web spider is David Welsh. Our intro music is Pretty Maid Milking Cow, and our exit music is Breakfast with a Morning Person, both by Michael Langberg. You can hear more from Michael Langberg on manyhatsmusic.com. Our podcast sponsor is Jackal Designs, enabling you all to buy cool WDC swag, including the celebration of our 100th episode t-shirt, or sweatshirt, or, you know, sticker. And hey, thanks for listening. 